All right, last Wednesday night we were talking about the church at Sardis, and before we start actually looking at the next verse there, we need to kind of get called up because what we're fixing to look at would make no sense. But what was the problem with the church at Sardis? What was the major complaint that Jesus had with them? They were dead, which is ironic because everybody thought they were alive. They had a reputation, evidently, as being a vibrant, uh, great and wonderful congregation. They probably had the best programs, had the nicest building, had good leadership, had good speakers, had good song leaders. Everything about it was good and wonderful. But Jesus says, nope, you're dead inside. The church itself is dead. And um, he gives them some advice, or really more of a command, that if they want to become alive again, if there's any hope from being resuscitated, from being dead, they need to remember a special time in their life. And what was the special time in their life? When they first heard the gospel and became Christians, Rekindle that flame that comes from being a new Christian before you get caught up in the routine, before you get caught up in going through the motions, that you go back and rekindle that flame. So after making this condemnation of the congregation as a whole, he says something uh, unusual. I said verse 5, but we need to start at verse 4. He says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Then verse 5 says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And um, I wish Jamie was here tonight, because last Wednesday night she was hoping we'd get to verse uh, four, where it says, have not defiled their garments. She says, she wanted to say, I hope you say, they have not dirtied their diapers. Um, because um, she thought that was funny, and then you got a little laugh out of it. But anyway, tell me, well, let's do this first. He says, they, has a, they have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. He says, a few names. Now, we don't know how many is a few, but looking at the congregation of the whole, there was a minority that still had the fire they needed to have. In fact, the statement is made, have not sold their garments. And when you think about not soling their garments, you think of something that they had done really bad, perhaps. Because the idea of soul here in the Greek is of taking something and just throwing it in the mud and muck and just making it filthy, is the idea in the Greek word. And so you first read that, you think, Oh man, they must have been involved in all kinds of stuff to have not have sold their garments because that means the people who have sold their garments are in some bad, doing some bad stuff. But nowhere in the text does it say that they're doing anything bad. What does it say they've done? Nothing. All right. They've lost the fire. They, they are dead on the inside. That's how they sold their garments. Now that teaches us a very important lesson. That it, it's easy to soil our garments, if you will, or not be what God wants us to be, and it can be just simply being dead. It doesn't mean you have to commit some kind of major sin or be involved in some type of of something that that, um, people would point a finger at you and say, well, that's a bad person. No, here in this case, remember he's making a contrast. There's a few in the church who have not sold their garments. Well, what did you just say that the soiling of the garments involved in the previous verse? 
the church was dead. So that shows you how God looks at inactivity, how God looks at going through the motions, how God looks at people who live Christianity and have no life and no joy in it, how they come to worship service and they just are here. They're not really worshiping. They're not really thinking about it. It makes no difference in their life. So that's a pretty strong argument. I think it's interesting, too, that the text says, Thou hast a few names. Why didn't he say a few people? Or there are a few in your church. Why do you think he actually uses the word names? All right, so you take what he said, add it to the book of life. What is the significance of that, though? What should that make us think about when we think about both then and now? Absolutely. In fact, in, in a lot of churches, I'm just going to piggyback on what you said, then I'll get back to what I was going to talk about. In, a lot of, in almost every church I've ever been associated with, and, and I've been associated with several, it's usually the few that are doing the work of the, of the, of the majority. There's always the faithful few that seem to do everything. If the church is this size or if it's a church of 600 uh, or more. Um, so that's a, a good point. But here's what I want you to think about. I think he uses the names here both, as Mike says, he's, he's making a comparison to Lamb's Book of Life or the Book of Life, and your name is there. That should emphasize to us that God knows our name. God knows us by name, okay? And I think also what's being alluded to here, and I've run into this before too when I preached at a very big church. It's very easy if you're in a big church, and that's the implication that's going on here. This is a church that has a name, has a reputation. So I imagine this was a good-sized congregation. It's very easy when you're in a good-sized congregation to feel unimportant, feel like nobody knows who you are. And I remember I was preaching at a place one time that had about 600 members, and I'd go up and introduce myself to somebody and say, it's so good to have you visiting with us here today. And they say, well, I've been a member here for 10 years. Well, there's no way for me to know everybody in a situation like that. But Jesus is letting these people know that are trying to do what is right. There are some people in that church that may not know your name, but I know your name, and your name's in the book of life. Jeremy, do you want to say something? No, no, I don't don't think you're wrong. Uh, Because remember, they had a name. They had a reputation as being, boy, that's the church I want to be a member of. And so it may be on Sunday they wore their Sunday best. But during the rest of the week, they put on their worldly best. And and, and maybe that's a good illusion to make there. So I think that's a very good point. But notice, once again, he says a few names. And if you ever notice that when you read through the Bible, it's always the few that are on God's side. For example, how many people were involved when the flood came? There was just eight. Think about that. Think about the enormity of that. The entire world perished. Now, we don't know how many millions of people were on the earth at the time, but think about that. How about all those people on the face of the earth, only Noah and his family were saved, eight people. Think about how big the nation of Israel was when it came out of the land of Egypt. Almost 700,000 strong. How many people went into the promised land? Of the original group of people that came out of the land of Egypt, only two. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Because 
they maintained their faith in God, whereas the others lost their faith in God. Now, that's mind-boggling when you think about it. But that also should make us realize sometimes when we feel like we're the faithful few and nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and the church seems like it's dead and you're trying to do what you need to do and maybe you get discouraged and think, well, what's the point? Well, right here in the text it says, I know there's a few names that haven't sold their, document, uh, sold their uh, garments and their name is in the book of life because that's what he's saying here. He goes on and says, they have not defiled their garments, they have, shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, I think what's going on here, there's a lot of, you know, when you think of white, you think of purity, and there is a contrast being made with soling your dark garments or defiling your garments and the whiteness, but also think that there is a parallel being made where in verse 3, as we've already talked about, how that you need to go back and remember when you were converted, when you obeyed the gospel, uh, we've talked about this before, how in the first century church, after a person obeyed the gospel and was baptized, they would give them a white garment to wear uh, to show that they had been, um, been saved. And maybe that's what they're allusion to there. Uh, there are some commentators who think the white is talking about here. Uh, in Roman times, whenever a Roman uh, general or commander would win a great victory, he would ride through the streets in white. And once again, this is the way the book of Revelation works. What, what does that image of white make you think of? Does it make you think of purity? Does it make you think of baptism and the, and the whiteness of that? Does it make you think of victory if you're thinking in current events of Roman times? But the point is, these few names are going to be in white, meaning that they are, are pure. They are going back to the time when they were baptized and, and the joy they felt then, and they were going to gain the victory. And they are worthy not because of the fact that they are worthy because of who they are, but because they walk with me in white. That's very important. Whatever the white is here, that's the, the thing that points at why they are worthy. And then he goes on and says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white. Now that's addressing the entire congregation now. It's not too late. There's still hope. You too, if you'll overcome the situation that you find yourself there in the church at Sardis, you too will be clothed in white. And it says, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The book of life is something we talked about when we were studying the book of Philippians. But cities at this um, point in time in history had what they called the book of life, which was the book of the lives of the people who lived in that city. And so most people think that this is an allusion to that, but this is the book of those who are living in heaven or the citizenship in heaven, that your role is in heaven because you are a Christian or, as it says here, confess his name before my father and before his angels. And, um, of course, he goes on. Um, but before we leave that, one thing I think is important to point out here. If a person's name would not be blotted out of the book of life, what is the opposite of that? Can be blotted out. It's very obvious that Jesus is saying here that you're not going to be, but if you read between the lines, there's the possibility that you can be. And that's his whole point. That's where I was going. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah, Calvinism teaches that once you're saved, you're saved no matter what. 
Well, right there's a situation where Jesus said, well, if you don't straighten up, you're not going to be in the book of life. Um, But if you do overcome, here's the condition, if you do overcome, then I will not blot you out of the book of life. And so you're exactly right. I was thinking about Calvinism or once saved, always saved also. Um, But then he goes on and says, he that had an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit saith and unto the churches. And so it goes both for the church and for the individuals. Now, what's interesting about the church at Sardis, you know, a lot of these other churches we talk about, well, they're just not there anymore. We don't know anything about them. Well, the church at Sardis we can read about in church history that came after the Bible and the apostolic fathers and the other uh, church uh, history that was written. And early church history tells us that this particular church grew in size, had nice had a very nice, impressive building, and had outstanding leaders. If you go back and look at the history of this church later on, moving into the first century, into the second century. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, is that, did that happen? Because there was a change within the church, and those who were dead got on fire and all that happened? Or was it the same thing that was already there? And they just kept adding to it that outwardness of being a church that has a name, but inside they continue to be dead. Just something to think about. But this is one of the churches that, that hung around for a while, For the others you don't know anything about. But any questions or comments on that before we get to the church of Philadelphia up there in Pennsylvania? Well, let's look at verse 7. And we see, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Um, really not a whole lot to say about this particular um, city. And church, other than to say that uh, Philadelphia, uh, they're in Asia Minor. This is not in Pennsylvania, but in Asia Minor. Uh, was called Philadelphia because of the king who conquered it. A, by, a guy by the name of Ad, Atomus II in 159 B.C. Uh, he became king of this region and established this city. And um, he either had a nickname or this, or some, you can find on the internet that this, some people think this was his actual name, but his name was Atomus uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphus, ah, I can't pronounce it now, Phila, not Philadelphia, but Philadelphos, there it is, Philadelphos. Philadelphos means the lover of his brother. And history tells us that he had a very close relationship with his brother, I can't remember his name right now, it started with an E, but you can look it up. If you, if you want to study such things. But they don't know if the city became the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, uh, because the name was changed down through the years. Originally it was Philadelphos, which means lover of brother, and later it was dropped and changed to Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, or that once he got there because of what he was known for, they immediately named the city Philadelphia or the city of brotherly love. And that's what the word means in the Greek. Delphia is city, and of course we got phileo, which means family love, brotherly love, and so that's why it's called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was a city known as the Little Athens. It was a very Greek town. It had a lot of Greek influence on the Roman world. It was also a town that was known for its great big vineyards, and the main god there was uh, Bacchus or Dionysus, depending on if you're Greek or Roman. Um, what's interesting about this particular church, of all the 
seven churches that we read about in the Bible, they're still religion, Christian religion in Philadelphia. Now, it's not a church of Christ, but there are, uh, there is a church in Philadelphia, and the city still exists. It doesn't go by the same name. There's a name in Turkey for it. The people know what you're talking about when you talk about Philadelphia of Asia Minor. In fact, you can once again go in and Google Philadelphia, Asia Minor, and it'll pull up the city. And um, there's, there's ruins there that have been excavated, and so you can see a lot of what the town was like uh, during the time that John wrote this. But what's interesting is there's still a religious, Christian religious presence in that particular city, whereas all these other places that we've talked about, those churches, uh, there's no existence whatsoever. And so it's just kind of interesting. Now, my, All right, I'm going to skip the rest of verse 7 right now and come back up to it because we really can't understand the first part of, of this section until we go down and look at verse 9. Alrighty, verse 9 says, Behold, I make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that that I have loved thee. Alright, we've seen this particular phrase before at another church that had a problem. And um, it's interesting, the church at Philadelphia... Jesus doesn't say a bad thing about them. He doesn't con- condemn them for anything. He just says good things about them. But before we can get into that, we need to understand and appreciate what's happening in verse 9. And those of you who were here when we talked about this earlier, uh, the church at Smart- uh, Smyrna, um, I believe was the one that had to deal with this before. My mind's gone blank. <laughs> yeah, it was Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, Jesus says almost the same thing about uh, the synagogue of Satan and the Jews who say they are Jews but are not. What did we discuss then? Um, what, is it, what did he mean by the, they, the synagogue of Satan and they call themselves Jews but they are not? Earlier we had talked about the church at Smyrna. And Jesus says they were dealing with the synagogue of Satan and the Jews who say they are Jews but they are not. And we had a big discussion then and we can have a big discussion now. But what, first of all, what is the synagogue of Satan? Um, well, they might have a part of it, but remember, we're dealing with Jews. Jews go to a synagogue, right? Once the temple was destroyed, they worshiped in a synagogue. Jesus says their synagogues, at least in this town and in Smyrna, he knew them as the synagogue of Satan. Okay? All right? They're going to the synagogue... And they're praising God in that synagogue. They're even reading scripture from the Old Testament and praying to God and whatnot. But because of the fact that they denied that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, it wasn't a synagogue of God anymore. It was now a synagogue of Satan. And then when you add to it, these same Jews that lived in this particular town, what were they doing evidently? If they were doing the same thing they were doing in Smyrna. They were persecuting the Christians. So... There's no way in the world that can be a synagogue of God if they were using the people who assembled there at that synagogue to go out and attack Christians and persecute them. Well, that's a synagogue of Satan. That's not a synagogue of God. And then he goes on to amplify it by saying, they call themselves Jews, but they're not Jews. Now, why are they not Jews? All right, they're not God's chosen people anymore. 
Um, Paul very clearly tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29 that Christians are now Jews, if you will. We're God's chosen people. We are the Abraham, we are the covenant of Abraham or Abraham's seed. We are the circumcision as opposed to the uncircumcision, I believe the way it puts it. And so they may call themselves God's chosen people, but they really aren't because they they are discounting what Jesus did on the cross. They are discounting the prophecy, his miracles, and then claim that that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that means they're no longer God's chosen people. Yes, ma'am. Well, they still believe in, 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 the, in the Old Testament. They're really big into what happened coming out of the land of Egypt and that kind of thing. They observe the different feast days, depending on which kind of Jew you are. You've got Orthodox Jew. You've got, you got, you got different denominations within Jewish faith, just like you do in Christianity. So you've got different levels of Judaism. Um, but the problem they've got now is there's no way to know if you really are a Jew. There's no records. It's all tradition. For example, uh, Jews in the Old Testament knew if they were of the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Nephilim or the tribe, you know, all those records were destroyed in 70 A.D. So nobody knows that if they're a Jew or not. All right, because the temple and the records were destroyed, there's now no longer a Levitical priesthood. So there's no way in the world they could worship like the New Te- like the Old Testament describes. Okay, they have no way to have any kind of atonement other than have a national holiday. They have the Day of Atonement as a holiday, Yom Kippur. But as far as what used to take place on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, where the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself after bathing completely, putting on clean garments, and then he would go into the holies of holies and offer up a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle blood on the holy, on the mercy seat of of the Ark of the Covenant, and that would be the day of forgiveness for the people of Israel. Well, that doesn't happen anymore, and so there's no means of atonement anymore. And so basically, you have a mixture, and that's why there's denominations among the Jews, how extreme they hold things and and how extreme they don't hold things. But the bottom line that's behind Judaism, regardless of what denomination of Judaism, is they don't believe the Messiah has come yet. And that's the key. That's why John and Jesus says what he says. They say they're Jews, but they're not. If they were really Jews, they would understand that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, now that we've established what you've brought up, let's go back and look at verse 7 and see why Jesus says what he says here. In verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. All right, he says three things about himself. This is taking a description of Jesus that we had earlier. He says, first of all, that he is holy. The person speaking here is Jesus, and he says that he is holy. What is he, what is he claiming for himself when he says he is holy? What is Jesus saying about himself? All right, if he's perfect, then who is he? God. He's not just a good man that they crucified on a tree. He is God. He is God. Now, notice what else he says. Not only is he God, he says he is true. Now, I'm just curious. Does anybody have anything different besides true? I'd be surprised if you do because you'd have to have a way off the wall translation. But true is not a real good word there. But very few 
very few translations translate it right. The word for truth is not the same word that we have here in the text. Instead, the word that we have here in the text in the original language is the word for genuine or real. Okay? Certainly, Jesus is true. He's truth. He says he's truth. He says, my word is truth. But that's not what's being emphasized here. What's being emphasized here is that he is genuine and he is real. Now, put on your thinking caps. You've got to think very spatially here to get this to come into your head the right way. Why is it important that he is emphasizing the fact that he is genuine and real if he's dealing with Judaism? Okay? And that's a part of it. He's definitely genuine in that way. He's not telling any falsehood. He is indeed the Son of God. Yes. Okay? And, and that's all part of it too. And especially if you look at it and you translate the word there, uh, aletheos is the word there, if I remember correctly, uh, which means genuine. Um, he's, 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 the, he's the real deal. He's cer- certainly the Messiah. All right, I like that. That is a real deal. And none of th- what you're saying is wrong. I'm just going to give you my what I think is being driven home here, and it might be just because of the way I think. Do you remember last Sunday when we started talking about um, the serpent in the wilderness? And at the beginning of the lesson, I talked about how that you go through the Old Testament, and there's all these shadows and types of what was to come. Well, the word here in the Greek carries that idea that this is what is the actual as opposed to what was the shadow. And this would, make, this would be a hit at the Jews here in the idea that they were trying to cling on to something that was just a shadow of that which was to come. Everything in the Old Testament was the type. Everything in the New Testament is the antitype. Everything in the Old Testament was the shadow. Everything in the New Testament is the real. And so it may be what's being played on here by using this word genuine or real. He's saying that all these things that you're holding to, you who are Jews, who say you are Jews but aren't really Jews, well, the problem is you're holding on to the shadow. Jesus Christ is the real. I'm the real. I'm God, and I'm the genuine article. I am the, the antitype. I am the, the real, not the shadow. But then to drive it home even further and to really, in a sense, punch these Jews in the gut, he says, he that hath the key of David. Now, have any of y'all ever seen the key of David? All right, let's ask this. What do you think the key of David is? All right, you remember how I told you that so much of the book of Revelation, if you know your Old Testament, then things will automatically pop in your head. And this would be the case of people here in the first century. But open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22, and there's where we're going to read about what is being described here, okay? And then we'll make the parallel that Jesus is making and how that he is saying nine on a boo-boom to these Jews. Let's start at verse 20. And it says, It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Elohim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle and I will commit thy government unto his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. 
and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, your Bible makes little notes about messianic prophecy. Uh, You'll have a star or something beside uh, your verse, and I have in my verse, if Miss Chris here, that'd be one of the first things she'd say, I've got one of those little things beside my verse here that this is talking about. Jesus, and it is a prophecy about Jesus, but also it was something that really happened. This particular guy, Elohim, was the head steward or head servant of King Hezekiah. And what's happening here in a historical standpoint is um, he was made the keeper of the kingdom of Hezekiah. In other words, only people that would be allowed into The palace would be by his permission. And in a symbolic sense, because we're talking about the throne of David and the lineage of David, he had the key of David. Who would be allowed to go into the kingdom? Who would be shut out of the kingdom? Well, it came down to this man who was a servant of Hezekiah in the historical context, but there's the greater spiritual context And John correctly applies it here in the text that Jesus is saying when he says this in this verse, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the one that has the key of David. In other words, I am the one who decides who enters the kingdom of God. Does that all make sense? In fact, he goes on and says that I'm the one who opens the door and I'm the one who shuts the door. And if I open the door, no man can shut it. And if I shut that door, nobody can open it. I am the one who is the final decider who gets into the kingdom. In fact, what did Jesus say in John 14 and 6? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. All right, now look what he's told these Jews that are part of the synagogue of Satan here at the very beginning. This is why I saved this after we established that there was a Jewish problem here. He is saying, I am God. I am the real deal. I'm not the shadows of the Old Testament. And I am the one who is the fulfillment of the kingdom of David that was prophesied. I am the one that has the keys of the kingdom and no one can get into heaven or the kingdom of God without me. Now, think about that for a few moments, you Jews who were persecuting these Christians who were part of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I said a lot there in a short period of time. Any questions or comments? So he goes on and talks about the church at Philadelphia in verse 8, and he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. All right, first of all, he says, I have set before thee an open door. What do you think he's talking about when he says there's an open door in Philadelphia? All right, first of all, when we think of an open door in a general sense, and by general, I don't mean army general, I mean like general sense. Welcoming, freedom, um, ever think of opportunity? Maybe hear the term open door of opportunity? Um, Whatever's going on here, it's opened up for them now because they are Christians, okay? That's the point that he is making. He's saying, in the verse, he's saying, uh, I know your works. 
talking about the good works of the church there at Philadelphia. And he says, because of that, I have set before thee an open door. Now, you can pick up five different commentators, and five different commentaries will say different things here. Some people think it's an open door of evangelism it's talking about here, that he has opened a door for evangelism there in the city. And it might be what he's talking about, but I believe there's an open door of evangelism regardless of where you live. Right? I mean, it depends on the person taking advantage of the opportunities. And there may be more opportunities in places than others, but I don't think that, that evangelism is dictated on the place. There are some people who think that the open door here is the idea of the open door policy of God where these Christians could pray to him whenever they wanted to and whatnot. Might be the case. But I think, and I, I'm not the only one that thinks this, um, it's not original with me, but I think what he's doing is making a play on words with what he said in verse 7 about having the key of David. He that opened and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man open. He is telling the church at Philadelphia, what has he done for them? He's opened the door. The man that has the key, he's opened the door for them. In other words, he's letting them in. In other words, he's telling them what? You're saved. You're part of the kingdom. The door's been opened for you. And that might be exactly what's going on. I might be wrong. But he goes on and says, after telling them they have an open door, he says, for thou hast a little strength. What do you think he means by if you have a little strength? Talking about the church, they have a little strength. Um, it may be a very small congregation. Maybe have few members. Maybe it doesn't have a whole lot of money. I think maybe there's a contrast here between the church that we just saw. The church before had everything, but they had nothing. Here's a church, they may feel like they have nothing, but Jesus is saying, Thou have, you have everything. You may be a church that has little strength, but notice what they had done. And while he was so proud of them, he says, Thou hast kept my word and not denied my name. Now, you first read that, it's easy to understand what he's saying. Evidently, they had never denied his name. But if you look at the original language and look at the Greek tenses here, both kept my word and denied my, not denied my name is in the aorist tense. There's two main tenses in the Greek. There's the present tense and there's the aorist tense. Present tense is continuous action. It's linear. It keeps flowing. The aorist tense is what we call punctiliar. It means there's a point in time, punctiliar, point in time. Both of these verses, both of these phrases are in the aorist tense. So it means that Jesus is talking about a specific time in history when this church stood tall. It may have been under a certain threat of persecution. It may have been people being put to death. We don't know, but what he's saying is, you may be a little church, but boy, you stood tall. You didn't back down. You didn't give up my word. You didn't profane my name and say that you're not a Christian. We don't know what that was, but at one point in time in the history of this church, something happened, and even though they had a little strength, they stood tall. And so he then in verse 9, as we've already talked about, tells us what the cause of their persecution was. It was these Jews that were part of the synagogue of Satan but then he says the most unusual thing that have puzzled people, how this is going to work. He says, Behold, 
I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. This is something that Jesus says that's going to happen. That these Jews that have been persecuting them, the King James says, I will make them come and worship before thy feet. Worship's not a good translation there. I bet somebody has something different. Maybe starts with a B. Bow down. In other words, they will bow down before them, not in a worship sense, but in an acclamation sense. So the question we ask ourselves now is, what in the world could this be talking about? What would be a circumstance that this church, that these Jews that have been persecuting them, would somehow or another turn around and bow down before them, admitting, hey, you're right, is the idea behind the text. You're right about this. He is the Messiah. He is who he says he was. We were wrong for persecuting you. What would be any kind of circumstance that that would happen? There's some people who think this idea of the open door was talking about evangelism. There's some people who think that what's being talked about here is the very Jews who are persecuted will one day be converted to Christianity. And they will have to bow down in a symbolic sense saying, hey, you're right. We were wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. He is indeed the Son of God, and we were wrong about it. And there's others who think this, I, mean, I know we've run out of time, there's others who think that this is simply talking about uh, what takes place over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, where it talks about how that Jesus, on the day of judgment, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed Lord. And it may be talking about how the day will come, not only those Jews, but the entire world, every person, ever who ever existed, will have to admit eventually that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we'll have to bow down before him. But anyway, our time is up. I appreciate your comments and all your questions so much. Thank you for making the class interesting.